Well, as Matt said at the beginning of the service, we have had quite a week. Um, We've had quite a week as citizens of this city uh, in an unprecedented kind of a way, and um, we've had quite a week as a community of faith here as well. It may be helpful to you guys to know that that Rio is a part of a a movement that the Spirit is doing here in Broward County and in other counties too, but, but I'm thinking Broward specific called Church United. If you've been around a while, you've heard about that. But if you haven't, Church United in a nutshell is a group of churches throughout Broward County and we're collecting up as many as we possibly can that are willing to cross all kinds of denominational lines and here's why. Because we agree on mission to the city in the name of Jesus and together to do mission to the city in the name of Jesus, and we're a part of the leadership team of that and of the churches that are leading that. And behind the scenes, we as that group of churches on the Broward leadership team have reached out to the families and to the victims of what happened on Friday here in our city and have offered prayer and counsel, but in addition to that, have offered to pay for hotel rooms and all kinds of other things. And so just know that that you're a part of that too and that that's the kind of thing that Church United exists to do. But as a community of faith, in addition, this has been a big week for us, as we have lost really two of the pillars of this church. And and I use that word intentionally. I want you to think about what a pillar is. What does a pillar do? A pillar holds things up. A pillar is part of the structure that stabilizes the whole of the structure, does it not? And not only does a pillar do that, but I mean, if you look at pillars... Typically, at least, they're ornamented, they're sculpted, they're beautiful. It beautifies the dwelling, if you will, the house. And we had the opportunity, really the privilege, to truly and authentically and with joy and tears celebrate two well-lived lives. And I was reminded at both of these memorial services, guys, of the power of a life lived for Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded as we return to our study too, that that is in fact what all of us are called to do. And as I've been saying since the beginning of this study, not as a have to. Oh, I have to do that. All right. If that's what you think, then you missed those memorial services. You don't have to do it. You get to do it. And in the end in ways that probably would have embarrassed these two individuals. It was stunning to see the impact and just a little glimpse of the impact that extends on into eternity for it's an investment in people that each of these people have. And here's what that requires, because we just sang it. Surrender. So with that in mind, we're going to continue this study that we began at the beginning of Advent that's going to take us to next Advent. And that we're calling the gospel changes everything. And every time I've been up here, but not in the last two weeks because I've missed it, I've explained why we're calling it that. And that is because the gospel changes everything. And the reason for that is because of what the gospel is and actually isn't. So the gospel is not, as I've been saying, the good news or not just the good news that God in and through Christ Jesus is making us new. But guys, it's the good news that God in and through Christ Jesus is in the process and he'll bring this process to an end of making absolutely everything new. All wrongs right, all injustices cured, all suffering ended, all of it new. And what we've been saying is, all right, so here we are in between this day that we're living now and that day, whenever Jesus returns to do that. So how do we live? Surrendered. But to what? To the mission that God has for my life and for yours. Not my mission for me, not your mission for you, not the missions that our culture and our society and our world comes to us in accordance with a very different set of values. 
and says, hey, here's a great mission for you. It's not it. How are we to live between this day and that day? We're to live as those who are renewing agents of God. That is to say, we are to use and to spend our lives by the power of the Spirit in obedience to God's Word, in community with one another in such a way as to be renewing agents of the Lord, to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to our world in our day. And what we've really been talking about, having said all of that, having stated what the mission is and the goal, what we're supposed to be doing is, but what does that require? Like what needs to happen inside of me for that then to start happening outside of me? I mean, if I'm going to authentically go all in on that, what change needs to occur in my heart? And as we looked, for example, at the stories of Mary and Joseph, hey, one of the things that we learned is, all right, well, it requires us to make a once and for all kind of a value judgment that every one of us, honestly, in our minds and even in our hearts already knows exists. But I've described it like this. It requires us to take ourselves and our absolutely everything, time, talent, the whole shoot and match, and to put it on this side of a big imaginary scale and then to walk over here and to take God and his mission to renew, wait for it, absolutely everything and put that on this side of the scale and then it requires us to stop doing what we typically do in regard to the mission of God and its value in comparison with our lives and our missions which is what let's be honest I do this too it's this la 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 we don't want to hear it why because we understand that when we hear the thud of the scale that's going to have implications for how we live and what we use and spend our lives on. And and we want to spend them on us. But wait, wait, hang on a second. If we do that, will that make our lives better or worse? More fulfilling or less? More meaningful or not so much? Purposeful? Satisfying? Good grief, we rush around trying to create purpose and significance and all of these things. And the Lord's going, hey, wait a minute. I've got that covered. I have that for you. It's in a life surrendered to me, to my purposes, to my mission. And in that, you will find all of these things that you're looking for. It's not a have to do. Oh, good grief, I have to do that. Yeah, forget it. No, you know. No, 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 it's a get-to-do. So wait, I get to take my itty-bitty life, my here-today-gone-tomorrow life. I think we're well acquainted with that this week. My leave-it-all-behind-when-I-die life, and I get to use it by investing it in the greatest cause that ever is and by building the only thing that will not, in the end, die. The kingdom of God. Yeah, you get to do that. All right, so good. So I'm in. So the first thing that it requires is for you and I to make that value judgment and to reckon with it honestly, to realize that God's mission to renew absolutely everything, listen, it's worth our absolutely everything and infinitely more, and that's awesome. But then secondly, as we continue today, what we're going to see is it requires us to reckon with who we are, you ready, not. We need to know who we're not. And then we need to know who we are. Because it's kind of like that value judgment. It's perspective giving. It's ordering of our lives. And what knowing who we're not and who we are allows us to do is to focus on that mission, the real mission of God's mission to renew absolutely everything. So with that in mind, I want to look at the greatest example apart from Jesus that I can find in the Bible of a guy who understood who he was not and who understood who he was and who as a result gave himself wholly 
to the mission. He did not lose focus. And his name is John the Baptist. And if you've done your personal worship this week, then you were in Matthew chapter 3, and you know a little bit about John the Baptist at the very least. So, for example, you read and you studied through that passage of Scripture in which John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and I promise we'll get to that. But I want to give you a little more of the backstory on John the Baptist first. I want you to learn and to see some things from the Gospel of John, a little confusing, about John the Baptist. So I want to look at this man beginning in John chapter 1, verse 19, where John the Gospel writer says this about John the Baptist. He says, and this is the testimony of John, meaning John the Baptist, when the religious establishment of the Jews in Jerusalem sent a special delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist a technical question. It's a significant question. It's very specific. And the question is, who are you? Now, here's what that doesn't mean. They're not going out there in search of John the Baptist. And, you know, they're like equipped with a description. And if you know anything about John the Baptist, you know the description. So he's like a guy and he wears really hairy clothes and whatever that means. And he wears a big leather belt, which is in fashion or not, or he doesn't care. He eats honey and locusts. Okay, so that's kind of unique. You do chips and salsa. He does honey and locusts. And we're in search of John the Baptist, you know, and so we come across this guy and he's got on these hairy kind of rough clothes and he's got the leather belt and he's doing the chips and salsa thing, but with the locust, which is nasty. And so who else could it possibly be? Who are you? Because we're looking for John the Baptist. That's not it. They're coming out there to ask him if he's the Christ. Are you God made man? Are you, are you the Messiah? Are you... Are you the one who will deliver us? Are you the hope of the world? Is that who you are? At least, John, who you're claiming to be and the reason that they're doing this. And we miss this from 2,000 years. You know, we miss this. is because John was enormous, guys. His ministry, from our perspective and vantage point now, as we look back on it, gets swallowed up almost entirely in the ministry of Jesus. But you need to understand that before everybody was following Jesus, they were following John. Before everybody was buzzing around Jesus and talking about Jesus, they were buzzing all around John, sticking microphones in the face of Jesus. No, no, no. Before Jesus, it was all about John. Jesus.com did not get off the ground until John.com just like soared through the stratosphere. He was the man. Keep that in mind. It's important as we think about this guy. And he was such a phenom that tens of thousands of people went out into the Judean wilderness to see John. And I don't know how many of you have been to the Judean wilderness. I've talked about this in the past. I've been there four times and with some of you guys. So I'm just going to say it. Okay, the only way, at least in my opinion, to see the Judean wilderness is through the window of a bus that's air-conditioned. As you drive through at about 65, praying that it doesn't break down with a cold bottle of water and a snack in your hands. That's it. The Judean wilderness is brown. The Judean wilderness is dead. The Judean wilderness is dry. The Judean wilderness is rugged. It's treacherous. It had ancient paths and all of this stuff that were patrolled, not by police, but by criminals. Dangerous animals. You know, like back in that day, if you had said to your friend, hey, we're going to, you know, our family's going camping, something I'll never say. But if you did, hypothetically, if you're one of those crazies, you know, voluntary homelessness, I'm going to go camping with my family. Do you want to come with your family? 
Well, I don't know. Where are you going? Judean wilderness. This conversation's over. You know, we're done. Camping is the Holiday Inn. That's it. I'm going to show you a picture of the Judean wilderness. Go take a walk in that. And without the newly paved road. Yeah, that looks like fun. Why don't we go out there somewhere? So many people flocked out to see John the Baptist that he attracted the attention of the temple in Jerusalem and the religious establishment said, you know what? We got to put a gang of people together. We need to go out there and we need to ask John who he's claiming to be. Is he claiming to be the Christ? And so they all drew straws and then short straw guys, God bless them, got to take on this mission. This is the testimony of John the Baptist when the religious establishment of the Jews in Jerusalem sent a special delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist, who are you? Are you the Christ? And notice how John, the writer of the book of John, sets up John the Baptist's statement because it's so emphatic. He says, John confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So it's kind of a big deal. And here's what he says, I am, and then here's the most significant word in the statement and maybe in the story. Because it's the key to John's self-understanding. It's the key to my self-understanding. It's the key to your self-understanding, whether, whether we realize that or not. John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am, here it is, not the Christ. And frankly, I think that's the starting point for every authentic gesture of humility, and it is the starting point for ministry, for mission no matter how that materializes. And I say that because, listen, I am not God means that by definition, I am not only not the center of the universe, I am not even the center of my universe. I'm just like, how could I be? I owe my very existence to the one who actually is God to say nothing of absolutely everything else, which means that when I act as though Actually, I am the center of the universe, or at least of my little universe. What have I forgotten? Forgotten who I'm not. I have forgotten who I'm not. And so John confesses and did not deny, but confess, I am, here it is, not the Christ. And so then they said, well, but man, we drew the short straws and we came all the way out here. Who are you then? What then? Are you Elijah? And again, he said, I am not. Are you the prophet foretold by Moses who would speak the word of God as did Moses? And John answered, and he said, no, I am not. So it seems to me that if John the Baptist, this amazing, incredible guy, knew anything at all about himself, it was who he was not. I am not. Okay, so I want you to think about that statement with me for a minute. What does it consist of? It consists of the words, I am, that are appended to the little word, not. So then what is I am? There's an answer to that. But for the answer, you've got to go back to the book of Exodus and you have to travel out into the Midianite desert at night with Moses in the dark. And there he is watching his sheep. And he looks off in the distance and he sees a a fire of some sort. It's kind of curious because it's not spreading. I mean, everything's pretty dead out there. So like if something catches fire, you would expect it to move. But he's looking at this. And so he approaches this bush. And not only is it not catching everything else on fire, as he gets closer to the bush, he realizes the bush itself is not even on fire, but there's fire around it. Like, it's really interesting, and it gets more interesting because out of the fire, the voice of the Lord comes and says, Moses, Moses. 
Take the sandals off of your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And he does. And what does the Lord do? You know the story. He says, Moses, listen, you know Egypt that you fled for your life from 40 years ago? You know the Pharaoh that you ran from 40 years ago? You know that place in which you failed in an attempt to at least deliver one Israelite, maybe in an attempt to deliver more. Now is the time for you to go back. I'm going to send you back to my people who have, don't miss this, been enslaved, slavery, and death in the land of death, which is Egypt in the Bible. It's where all the mummies come from. For 430 years, by generation after generation, they've known nothing but slavery and death. I'm sending you, of all people, to them as their deliverer, and you're going to lead them out by my power. And what does Moses say? He's like, oh God, you know, that just sounds so awesome, but you know, don't you think maybe you could find somebody else? I'm not really that articulate. I, I failed the last time. I don't like the Pharaoh. He tried to kill me. You know. But here's what he says when he realizes God is not going to relent. He says, look, here's the deal. I'm going to show up and say, I'm your deliverer. And these people are going to go, really? Who sent you? Give us the name of the God that sent you to us. And God said, you know, you're right about that. So here's what I'm going to do. Like, I have a lot of names, but I'm going to give you the name, like the penultimate name. I'm going to give you a name that will be my memorial name for all generations. Do you hear that? Because we are one of those generations. It's important. And so he says, get out a pad of paper and something to write on Moses. He's like, good grief, I'm a shepherd, man. You know, what do you think? I got this stuff laying, I have like a desk, you know? So finally he finds something to write with, you know, and he goes, all right, Lord, so here's the deal. I'm ready. The name, like above all the other names. So lay it on me. And God says, all right, so here it is. My memorial name for all generations. It goes like this. I, Moses writes I, am, he writes am. And then there's nothing. And Moses is thinking, I don't know, pregnant pause, you know, God has a flair for the dramatic. He starts retracing his letters. I am, he puts a little blank fill in the blank, you know, and he starts to doodle, he draws a picture of a sheep. I mean, he's just waiting for the Lord to finally, like at some point, you know, Lord, I, I think I heard you so far. I don't know, maybe I'm having a trouble with my ears. Um, but I got the I, and then I got the am, and then I got this blank. So like, I am what? The Lord says, no, Moses, that, you got it. That's the whole name right there. When you come to my people and they ask you who it is that is able to deliver them from slavery and death in the land of the dead, that's when I want you to tell them that my name is I Am. And there is none like me. And it's fascinating to me, you know, as you come to John's Gospel, this book of John, in which we find all of this information about John the Baptist who says, I am, and then he says, not. And you continue to read past that story, you find seven different occasions, all of which are unique to John's Gospel, in which Jesus 
does this. Like Jesus then does what? On seven occasions, he reaches back into the book of Exodus. He goes out into the Midianite desert with Moses and he takes his rightful place, not next to Moses, but in the fire because he is the I am God and that's his whole point. And he lays hold of the I am name of the Lord and he attaches it to an image of life. And then he says, here's who I am. Understand me like this. I am, he says, the bread of life. And so what is he saying to us? He's saying, listen, you're a person. You have all kinds of appetites that you try to satisfy with all kinds of things. I have made you for me. So if you're looking for the one who alone can satisfy you, I am that one. See how it works? I am the good shepherd. Hey, you know what, Lord? I make a mess in my life. I do that fairly regularly, actually. It's quite remarkable. Who is the one who can guide me? Who is the one who can lead me? Who is the one who can guide and lead me beside quiet waters and to green pastures? Who alone can restore my soul? He's not hiding this from us. He's going, yo, I am. That would be me. I am the door. What does the door do? In story after story in the Bible, what does the door divide? What does it separate? It separates judgment, death, and destruction on the one side of the door, and it offers deliverance and life on the other. Who who can do that? Who can give us one and not the other? God says, I'm the one who does that. That's that's like my thing. I've got that dialed in. I'm the light of the world. I alone can dispel the darkness in and around you, and I will. I'm the resurrection and the life. Newsflash, everyone here, unless the Lord returns first, is going to die. Sorry, not trying to be a downer. I mean, I've already laid the whole locust and honey thing on you, so I mean, you know, I'm asking a lot, right? It's true. Who is the one who is able to give us life? God says, listen, I've got the corner market on that. I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. It's the emblem. Wine is the emblem. You get in trouble with it, I know. But it's the emblem of joy. Think about that. And what are you looking for joy? Who can give me joy? God says, you know, I'm able to do that. And so I wonder if there isn't a sense in which John the Gospel writer who draws all of these stories under the inspiration of the Spirit so beautifully together and within the context of the whole of his Gospel is positioning John the Baptist here at the beginning as saying something like this. If his name, the one that you're going to learn all about in this book that you're reading about me in this particular section in, is I am, okay, then I know who I'm not. (laughs) And in fact, that's my name. I am not. I'm not the creator and sustainer of life. I'm not the alpha and the omega. I'm not the beginning and the end. I'm not all-powerful. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not everywhere present. I think we're clear on that. I'm not the fount of all wisdom. I am not, don't miss it, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the door, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. I'm not the way, the truth, or the life. I'm not the true vine. But I know who is. So his name is I am and my name is I am not. And then we read in verse 22, that these guys, this delegation sent out, short straw guys, said to John, well then, who are you? Because, (laughs) dude, we've come a long way. Like, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. And so what do you say about yourself? And John said, all right, well, since you asked, here's who I am. 
I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, not of one whispering in the wilderness or muttering in the wilderness or even talking in a normal tone of voice in the wilderness, but passionately crying out in the wilderness and crying out not just once. The language that underlies the translation, and frankly, even in the English, carries with it this idea of constant and continuous crying out. So John's not going, look, I'm a guy who cried out passionately once in the wilderness, and hopefully somebody captured that, and you can watch it on YouTube. He's saying, this is my deal. This is what I do all of the time. I am the voice of one crying out passionately, constantly, continuously, make strong the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John not only knew who he was not, but he knew who he was, a passionate voice, constantly and continuously pointing people to the people-renewing, world-renewing Jesus when? In his world and in his day. And that's who we are as well, and it's, it's what we are to do. You know, as I thought about that question, who are you? I thought about how, I think maybe, you know, I would typically answer it, or maybe you would typically answer it. I thought, you know, because I think a lot of times we would answer it by kind of describing maybe some hat that we wear, some role that we play. So who are you? Well, I am. I'm a pastor. I'm a dentist. I'm a landscaper. I'm in real estate. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a friend. I'm a... And John's going, no, 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 no. Let me, let me clarify this for you. So whether you're doing this or not, and that's the issue, but the, here's who you are. You are a voice passionately, constantly, continuously crying out into the wilderness of your family, of your office, of your school, of the city, of this world. Pointing people to the hope of the world whose name and whose name alone is I am and who alone can and will renew all things. And wants to do that in part through you. So John knew who he wasn't. He knew who he was. And that enabled him to stay focused on the goal, on the mission, even though you know the mission becomes, as we're now going to see, very costly to him. And I want you to put yourself in his sandals and kind of imagine experiencing this. He does this even though it costs him everything. Why? Because he's heard the thud of the scale. He's gotten that message and embraced it as good. And I say that because if you know the rest of this story in the Gospel of John, these guys, short straw guys, okay, they go back to Jerusalem. They've got their answer, whether they understand it or not, I don't know. And John's out there. And remember, John's the biggie. He's like the draw. He's the man. So he's out there by the Jordan holding court, right? Having a huge church service. Feel the ego of that. Feel it. Because it's tempting. And here comes Jesus. And what does John do? Because he is awesome. He stops the service. He says, guys, I don't know if you missed it yesterday, but these guys were here from Jerusalem. They asked who I'm not, or who I am. And I said, well, I'm not the Christ. I am not, but I know I am when I see him. And that's him right there. And like half the people there get up and walk off with Jesus. The next day, to make matters worse or better, depending on your mission, it happens again. So whoever's left, they're there again because, you know, they're John loyalists. And then here comes Jesus. And he says, I don't know why y'all are here. Day two, this doesn't make any sense to me, but maybe, maybe you didn't get it. So I'm going to explain it again. I am not, but, but he is. And a whole bunch of the rest, I mean, like even some of his most loyal followers leave and then they follow Jesus. And then the finance team afterwards has a little comment, you know, conversation with him, right? 
And I said, man, you know, this Jesus is killing us. It's not so cool that he set up a church like around the corner. That's just, I, you know, I, John, your ministry is imploding. Your greatness is diminishing. Is it? Or is it increasing? Well, it depends on who's at the center of your little universe, doesn't it? Doesn't it? What is the mission? How do you define greatness? It's all upside down. And John explains that to them, and he explains that to us. And I want you to listen to the language particularly that he begins with in John 3, verse 27. Let this like sink in for a second. Because we love to give ourselves credit for things. So let's feel the weight of this because it's inescapably true even to reason itself if there is a God from which all things derive. John answered and he said, a person cannot receive, here we go, even one thing. I'm going to read that again. He said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That has to be this case. We derive our very being and then everything else. It all comes from our Father's hand. And so then John's like, yeah, so, you know, we had a big church and we had a lot of crowds and a lot of people wanted to take my, you know, interview and let's get a picture, a selfie with John the Baptist down by the, you know, whatever. And my YouTubes were going crazy and it was, it was awesome. And, and yeah, and none of it was, was me. <laughs> it was all from the Lord. It's His to do with whatever He way in whatever way that He wants. And I have been divested, but I have been divested for the greatest cause ever. And guys, that's a good thing. That is to my eternal benefit. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness, he says, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him in order to point people to him. That's my mission. The one who has the bride, he's like, guys, who is that? Because it seems to me that the bride is the people of God and they're flocking to the bridegroom. That's Christ. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom, that's all I am. But wow, what an awesome privilege. Who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine in seeing the bride go to the bridegroom's church, if you will, is now complete. He, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And here's what frees me to do that, John's saying. Knowing who I'm not and knowing who I am. And you say, but where did John gain that understanding? Well, the Gospel of John makes it clear that he gained it through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and certainly, if he had any questions about it, it was confirmed in that passage of Scripture that you've studied in your personal worship this week in the baptism of Jesus for Matthew in Matthew 3 beginning in verse 13, says this. He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River, which incidentally would have been, based on where the baptism took place, about a 70-mile walk to John. 
to be baptized by John. And Matthew says that John would have prevented Jesus from doing so, saying, I, John, need to be baptized by you, Jesus, and do you come to me even though your name is I am, and I, you know, mine is, well, it has that not word attached to it. But Jesus answered, saying, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And what is Jesus doing? He's saying, I want to publicly identify myself with the repentant. That is to say, with people who recognize their need for me, who recognize their sin needs to be covered, who recognize that they can't cover it themselves, and who recognize that I have come to do what they cannot do for them and in their place. The ones that I lay my life down for. Jesus says, let it be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And so then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the river, meaning he walks up out of the river, out of the water. And what? Behold, the heavens were opened to him. And the Gospel of John indicates that John the Baptist saw these things, you see. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. And behold, and John the Baptist heard this too, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Which, if you think about it, is exactly what every creature created by God longs to hear said about him or her. Isn't it? I am well pleased. Why? Because in our more honest moments, we realize that maybe we've given some reasons for that not to be the case. And we surely have. But through faith in Christ, in His life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection done for all who come to Him, who give them their sin, their debt, call it whatever you want, and who give to them their lives because it's a get-to-do. Man, God is well pleased with you too. He states that same benediction over you. And that's how and when His renewing work begins. But it doesn't end with us. It ends when the Lord returns and renews all things. And between then and now, we are to live as the renewing agents of God, which presupposes that we let ourselves, we stop this and we let ourselves hear the thud and acknowledge that it's good. It's clarifying. It's perspective giving. It is ordering of all things. Oh, and we know who we're not. And we know who we are. So, have you heard the thud? That's question number one. And here's how you know. It begins to show up in your life in mission. And do you know who you're not? And do you know who you are? Not God, but a passionate voice. And here's how you know. You stop trying to get God and everything else to circle around you and your mission, and you place yourself in orbit around Him and His. And you find that by your life and with your mouth, you become an ever-increasingly passionate voice, an advocate of the Lord, through whom all the people that you know, if they surrender themselves to Him as you have, can be renewed and find forgiveness purpose, meaning, and mission that matters. Okay? So think on those things and let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the lives uh, lived uh, in this community here in accordance with your word that have made deep and powerful impacts upon us and upon this community.
for many people saved through the work of your people here. And that is a renewing and a wonderful and amazing work. And we thank you, Lord, too, for your word which tells us of others who have gone before us, people who by faith are a part of our very own history. We're written into your redemptive story, and they're a part of that story, and they stand as great examples of people who by faith have heard the thud of the scale. They've weighed themselves out against the great and surpassing and infinite value that is you and your mission, who have recognized the transient nature of all things in this world and have realized that, man, it is a get to do to be a part of what you're doing to bring renewal to the world in their day, in our day, and in every day between now and your return. I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us to do that, that you by your Spirit would enable us to do that. We don't do that by nature. And that you would impress upon us this morning who we are not, who we are, and far more significantly, who you are. Do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.